0: Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are are humbled by the magnitude of grace and mercy and peace that you promised to us and that you have given us. Lord, I pray that this morning as we open your word, as we are challenged with uh, the unshakable truth of Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would hold fast to that gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be discerning, that we would be wise. But I pray that our hearts would be penetrated by your word. Convict us where we are foolish and weak, where we do not believe right things about you. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but people have strong opinions today. <laughs> Politics, sports. Everywhere, perhaps more than ever, we find ourselves divided politically, even to the point of anger, violence, and rage. You can't turn on a news network or a news website, uh, an aggregate news website, or load Twitter without being bombarded with rhetoric and exaggerations of one side trying to paint the other in a negative light. Uh, These have even extended into personal interactions between friends and family and classmates. And as a sports fan, I am as guilty as any... Of these strong opinions. You know, there are television programs on sports networks literally dedicated to arguing useless things that are going to change next week. And they're the most popular ones. This tendency to separate from one another along serious things like ideological lines, philosophical, political, religious, and not-so-serious things like sports and taste and preference, it's part and partial parcel of our social climate today. But paradoxically, existing alongside these divisions is a longing for unity and peace, longing to be together, to come together in community, in consensus, and in relationships. And as Christians, that idea of unity is central to what it means to be the church. Various types of people from various times, varying places on earth, varying races and ethnicities coming together, unified in one faith, under one gospel, under one Jesus, It's a special thing, the gospel, that can bring together Jew and Gentile, old and young Yankee fans and Red Sox fans. A central reality to the church is that there is a unity in the first things. But what we're reading this morning makes clear that that unity only extends so far. There is something worth dividing over. A truth that, when abandoned, ceases to hold together The ever-competing worldviews of Jew and Gentile, of grizzly and bobcat. Inside of such a divided culture that yet longs for unity and peace, the Western church, I think, has held up this banner of unity as a standard against culture's encroaching wave of disagreement and conflict and division. And we're going to see this morning John arguing for division. Specifically, the church... And her people rejecting any version of faith, any version of the gospel that abandons Jesus as its center. And it's not just rejecting the idea, but it's rejecting the people that would teach and give away this idea. And so what we're going to see in the short letter this morning is simply this. True love rejects all that abandons Jesus. True love rejects all that abandons Jesus. The big idea we're going to read about this morning is how the church is to respond to the idea, or to, how the church is to respond those, to those that have rejected the truth of Jesus as the Son of God made flesh, and what that temptation means for the church and her people, and how the church is to respond to that. And we're going to see that in kind of three separate sections this morning. First, we're going to see walking in the truth, in love. Second, we're going to see what the doctrine of the deceivers is. And then finally, we're going to see what the church's response is. And so everything John pens this morning morning, is supportive of a church that is threatened by a Christless doctrine. As we read and dive into the text this morning, my hope is that it would provoke a heart of discernment, that we would be more cautious and thoughtful as to what and who we listen to, but also that we would corporately and privately actively reject any faith or spiritual practice, or future hope that does not hold at its center the person and work of Jesus. So let's begin our letter this morning with John's greeting in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, this Father's Son, in truth and in love. Reading this short section, the introduction to John's letter, it sounds like uh, much of the letters that are written in the New Testament as they begin. There's a beginning and a greeting. It says the elder to the elect lady and her children. The elder is John, and the elect lady is the church, and her children are its members. We read that, and it could be like a spe- we could think about a specific person. But as we read that and the ending we get the sense that he's writing to a church. That and the nonspecific greeting without a name tells us it's probably a group of churches that John is writing to. And the beauty of the, in the concise nature of this letter is such that included in this greeting, in this opening, is an introduction to everything he's going to talk about through the rest of the letter. The word truth in that introduction shows up four times, and the word love shows up twice. We know that we're going to be talking about truth and about love, So as we begin the letter, our first point this morning is just that, walking in truth and love. Read verses four to six with me. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this love that we walk according to the commandments, that is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. So reading this first section, we see a couple of things. We see John is excited that some of this church is walking in this truth, that he asks them to love one another. And so he connects these two ideas of truth and love from the outset. So there's a question begged here as we read the word truth. What is it he's talking about? When he says truth, what does he mean? What truth is he excited that they are walking in? What is he celebrating and affirming? There are lots of truths that we could celebrate and affirm, but here John is pointing to something very unique, very specific, as would be expected as we read Second John, there is a lot of consonants if we were to read first John. Turn to first John verse one or chapter one, verse five through seven. He says this: "This is the message we have heard from God and proclaim to you that God is light." And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Look at chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commands us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, the spirit whom he has given us. Walking in truth is to live a life in a way that is consistent with the commands and example of Jesus as the incarnate son of God. The distinction in the first verse between light and darkness is a distinction between walking in light of the reality of Jesus as the savior for mankind, or not Walking in darkness is not walking in the truth of the gospel of Jesus as the Savior. And walking in light is to walk in light of the truth of Jesus as the Savior. The truth that John's talking about here in 2 John is an affirmation of this church's commitment to the doctrine of Jesus. It might seem a silly thing to affirm in a church, right? They're Christians. Yay, you love Jesus. Of course we do. But look at the phrase again in verse the way he phrases it in verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. John only has affirmation for some of these church members. As will be clear in the coming verses, this was not a given reality for this entire church, for all in this church that would call themselves Christian. And nevertheless, he follows up his command or his affirmation with a request and a command. Look at verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Now, love, like the word unity, it's an idea and it's a virtue that we can all get behind. When we think about love, we think of a verb. We think about the outward-facing aspects of who we are as a church. Part of our 50-50 legacy a couple of years ago has three pillars. It's to be a healthy church, a Missoula church, and a sending church. We love the idea of being a Missoula church, of loving our community, of serving the weak, of helping those in need, of giving where there's need. But as foundational as that is for who God calls his people to be and who we want to be as a church, that's not the kind of love that John is talking about here. He's talking about loving one another. Those inside of the church, loving those inside of the church. And now again, there could be a lot of vagary around the word love. There's many words in the Bible. Like, what does it mean to love one another? What exactly is John after here as he asks them to love? And again, our, mind, our minds probably wander to acts of service and generosity and giving. Maybe to caring for Sarah and Tyler as they're out this week, helping them with meals, encouraging them, praying with them, helping with their children. It might wander to serving those that are sick. It might wander to helping those that someone needs moving. Again, all good things, all charges given to God's people, just not here. Look at how John clarifies what he means by love when he defines it in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Walk in What? walk in truth. He is making a deep connection between love and truth. He's making a deep connection between love inside of the church and walking in truth, which he already established. Walking in truth is what? Walking in light of the reality of Jesus, the doctrine of Jesus. So then, in other words, This love is to shape our inner and outer lives inside of the church around the truth of Jesus. So to love one another is to walk in truth with one another. This kind of love that is encouraged here is loving each other by encouraging our brothers and sisters with the gospel constantly, with the truth of Jesus himself. Reminding the suffering church member what Paul writes in Romans that this present glory is not worth being, or this present suffering is not worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. A glory purchased by the blood of Jesus. This kind of love Paul's talk or John is talking about here is loving the church enough to every single week from this pulpit to teach the gospel of Jesus. The kind of love he's talking about is the kind of love that teaches one another in counseling, the centrality of Jesus and his gospel regarding anything that life could throw at us. The kind of love he's talking about is the kind of love that in discipleship is not vague encouragements or a spiritualized morality, but a discipleship that builds from and builds to the gospel in everything. The love we are commanded here is to hold fast to the centrality of Jesus, Not just for our own sake, but for the sake of our brothers and sisters and the church. In one paragraph, John encapsulates an idea that we cherish here at Sovereign Hope. You may have heard it phrased, the gospel in all of life, or the gospel for all of life. It just means everything we do here, everything we want to do at Sovereign Hope, formally and informally, will always have its roots and its end in the gospel whether it's a sermon preached from the pulpit, discipleship relationships, community groups, counseling, GCF, our new building, everything we want to have rooted in the gospel of Jesus. The first point John makes is this broad sweeping ideal that at the center of everything the church does is the gospel and Jesus himself, specifically his incarnation and his work on the cross. This is made even clearer by our next point this morning, the doctrine of the deceivers. We alluded to some of John's earlier writings, right, in his first letter to help explain some of the phraseology he uses in the intro to this letter, that we might understand more clearly what truth and love mean. The next verse confirms specifically that he is talking about holding fast to Jesus as the center of their life and doctrine. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. First off, let me finish the verse, I should. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So first off, when I read this, I was like, uh, yeah, I'm not preaching that. That has the word antichrist. (laughs) A little bit scared. Uh, But right contained in that verse is a description of what that antichrist is. It's the deceiver who preaches a gospel that doesn't contain Jesus as the center. that doesn't contain Jesus as the Son of Man. It doesn't contain Jesus as the Son of God. Now, the one who has gone out to teach against Jesus, there are two ways that this deceiver denied the truth of Jesus that God is after in our love and in our truth. First, it's Jesus was not the second member of the Trinity, that he is not God, that he was merely a man. Maybe he did some great things. He had some power and control, he taught some wonderful things, but he was a man. Like Elijah, he was a man that did amazing things. Like Moses, he was a man that spoke to God. Like David and Solomon, who had wonderful truth and idea, yet still a man, not God. Second is that Jesus, whether he was God or not, did not fully atone for the, war, for the sin that he died. That he did not fully purchase on the cross pardon from death as he rose again. That the work of the Jesus on the cross was not sufficient for eternity to fulfill God's mission. Either way, these deceivers are teaching lies and deceptions about who Jesus is and the role that he plays in the life of the believer, in the life of the church. So putting this all together, John is encouraging these churches to walk in the truth of the gospel, to love one another with that gospel, because there are these insidious and deceptive teachers and leaders trying to pull people away from Jesus trying to pull people away from Jesus at the center of their life and doctrine. And sadly, as we saw, they're not entirely unsuccessful. Look at verse 4 again. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. If some of them are walking in the truth, that assume some of them are not. Presumably, there was great concern on John's part and the rest of his church that these deceivers were attractive in their lives, that they were persuasive in pulling people away from Jesus. And there are a lot of historical, heretical teachings of these kinds of folks. But common amongst all of them is this idea that Jesus is not the fulfillment, that Jesus is not the center, that Jesus is not enough. Something vital to get here is John is making a historical, factual claim. He says those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Jesus was a real man, a real living, breathing person on this earth. God made flesh, incarnate deity, in as much a, it is as much a historical fact claim that John is making here as it is a theological or spiritual one. And this is so important, especially as we read it now, because often we can read God's word, study it, talk about it, and sometimes we forget we're reading real life. Like we're reading real history as God penned it for us, especially regarding Jesus and his life and his death and resurrection. Look how Paul talks about Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you brothers, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain, these are the first things, Paul. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also. To me, the way God saved his people is through the very physical reality of Jesus, the very physical reality of his excruciating suffering and death on a cross, a wooden cross where he sweat and bled. Central to the gospel is the very idea of the physical reality that after he died, that body was raised again. Central to the reality of Jesus in the gospel is that after he was raised again, he appeared to real people, real people who saw him alive. See, the historical reality of Jesus are central to love and truth as are the spiritual realities. Because without the physical reality of Jesus, the spiritual ones don't matter. I have a friend that I went to school with uh, became really good friends for a while before they left Missoula. And um, we were friends for a long time. And I thought forever that this person was a believer that trusted in Jesus for their hope and their salvation. And Jessel and I went to see them uh, a number of years ago, and we were talking about life and faith and s- spirituality and just kind of our life in context of faith in the gospel. And a conversation led somehow to this very topic, the historicity of Jesus and the gospel. And near the end of the conversation, this person who I had little doubt was a believer made a comment that just floored me. They asked if I thought that someone had to believe in Jesus was really God in the flesh, that he really died, that he really rose from death in order to be a Christian in the eyes of God. I said, of course, of course. This person said they didn't think so. And then I asked if they thought that. They said no. They said it's a story, a metaphor, meant to point to virtue and the character of God that humanity should aspire to there in achieving closeness and communion with our creator. Since then, I've had that exact same conversation with probably two dozen students on campus. Church, this rejection of Jesus is veiled in metaphors stories and poetry and it's far more pervasive than we think. Another uncomfortable conversation I had. uh, my second year here at Sovereign Hope on staff with GCF, we were tabling in the UC, which basically you set up a table and you're trying to meet students, meet new students and get contact and get contact information and sit down and have coffee with them. And it was two or three students um, that I was talking to and I the way they were speaking, I assumed they were believers, sounded like they were, but a couple of minutes into the conversation I learned that they were Mormon. So we proceeded to talk for like 10 minutes, and I got two phone numbers, and I was very excited because our goal in that is to get phone numbers and sit down over coffee, sit down and talk about faith and life. And if they're a believer, start a relationship, a discipleship relationship, and if they're not, share the gospel with them. Bring them to church so they can hear the gospel. And out of the blue, about 10 minutes in, one of their friends came over and just explicitly asked, not a word before, just asked, do you think Mormons are Christians? This was after a 10-minute conversation with two of them. I tried desperately to avoid a one-word answer. I finally said no. I said, believing in Jesus, as the Mormon church teaches, I don't think that you can be a Christian. In a moment, all of them gone. There were 16 million Mormons in the world, nearly all of which would also call themselves Christians. Christians church more than that, more insidious and deceptive than even that, is the prosperity gospel. A survey done by Lifeway in 2018 showed that of Protestant churchgoers, 38% believed or agreed with the statement, my church teaches that if I give more money to my church and charities, God will bless me in return. As if tithing and giving is somehow an investment account. That's nearly 4 in 10 people that attend Protestant churches are being taught that faith in God is a means to financial wealth, physical health, and material prosperity. It is a perversion of the gospel that turns Jesus into a vending machine for health, wealth, and power. And nearly 40% of those surveyed that go to Protestant churches are being taught that faith in the gospel of Jesus is an investment strategy where prayer and devotion to God is a means and tool to lure God into blessing us materially. There are deceivers all around us, enticing our greedy and prideful hearts into thinking of ourselves and not our savior. These deceivers are not just a first century church problem. They're a threat to our faith, in our country, in our city. That is why the redundant emphasis on the truth Of walking in the truth in the gospel is so vital. The redundant emphasis that Jesus is God and the atonement for sin. Now, with this broad idea, what do we do with this? How are we to respond to the threat that John describes and lays out? Well, first, he's given us one already. Hold to the truth, right? Hold to the truth as Jesus is the center of all and use that as a means to love one another. But graciously... That broad command gets more specific in the rest of our text. That's what we're going to see here for the rest of our text is our third point, how the church responds. For the rest of the body, we're going to be getting a window into specifically how these churches are to respond to the threat of the deceivers with love. We get three different facets of that love, and first is hold on to hope. Look at 2 John verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Threaded throughout this whole letter is a, in a short letter, is a hope in what will be. Hope in an eternity promised and secured by Jesus for his people. The command here is to watch yourselves, take care of your doctrine and your teaching and what you believe and think. Ensure that what you were believing and teaching and holding on to is consistent with walking in truth and love. It's not entirely different than his command earlier. Yet look at the weight he puts at the end of the verse. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win the full reward. This is clear reference to eternity. This clear reference to eternity only heightens the vitality of holding fast to Jesus, because what's at stake is not a matter of opinion, but salvation, eternity, which is why his language towards those deceivers is so harsh, why he used that dreaded word, antichrist. That's why the language, he pre- the language to those who preach a Christless gospel is so harsh, because so much more is at stake here and this isn't the first time he alludes to eternity in our text. Look at verses 1 through 3 one more time. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth And love. This is a church threatened by a Christless gospel that some have bought into. They're likely discouraged and anxious. So, John threads through this letter this hope in what will be, this hope in what is promised if you hold fast to the gospel of Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is not that it promises material prosperity or even relational harmony or political power. The beauty of the gospel is that it promises an eternity of peace, grace, and mercy. A reward that moth and rust will not destroy. And yet that's what's so tempting, isn't it? We want our reward now. We want a more immediate fulfillment for our comforts and our peace and our pleasures. Just perhaps why the prosperity gospel is so appealing see, what this church needs is hope. Some of their people are being lured and enticed by these false ideas of faith and spirituality that have been in Jesus. They're likely being persecuted. There's a lot of suffering and pain happening in this church, and they need hope. See, true hope for the Christian is not in rescue from our current circumstances. There are a lot of religions, secular creeds, and consumer goods that promise to save you from joblessness, addiction, relational disharmony. Only Jesus can offer an eternal reward. Only Jesus can offer what will be. So the first way that we love each other is by holding on to the hope of eternity. Second, it's this, teach Jesus always. Check 2 John verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead And does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So the phrase goes on ahead and abide in are contrasted here, right? If Jesus wasn't really the Son of God, didn't really atone for all of our sin, only partially paid that penalty, then of course there would be more to move on to. There would be more work to do. There would be more atoning to do. There would be more work to reconcile our sinful soul back to a holy and perfect God. But Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, complete. Sin totally and utterly paid for in a moment. There is no effort or work or sacrifice or penance to be paid. To say or teach otherwise is to not have God. It's to not be reconciled in relationship to our creator, Most of us, if not all of us in this room, would affirm that, but there are subtle ways that we move beyond the gospel, looking for answers to our spiritual woes in something else, blog posts, TED talks, podcasts, a new book, medication, a distraction, self-care. All of those things are not bad things. All of those things can be a means of grace for us to alleviate suffering, make sense of our experiences, or put in a modern context, that's what the, which the Bible makes clear. But as with everything, we're tempted with excess. We're tempted to rely on those graces more and more for relief, more and more for hope. So what our hearts gravitate towards is no longer the gospel of Jesus, but the gifts he's given us. It's why we emphasize what we did earlier about ministry here at Sovereign Hope. Never would we think ourselves too advanced or too broken for the gospel. In every sermon and every discipleship and counseling relationship and every community group, we teach Jesus always. Every sermon, every meeting, every study, we teach Jesus always. The third and final way of loving our church in truth is to reject the deceivers. Look with, me, look with me at verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this teaching of Jesus as the incarnate son of God, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Again, harsh words. But harsh words that make sense when in light of eternity, when what what is at stake is eternity. I think it's really, really important here to make sense of who the deceiver is, to be very clear about who the deceivers are. It is teachers, religious leaders, traveling evangelists that would teach and share a Christless gospel, a faith void of Jesus as king. The idea behind this strong warning is that the church would not be influenced by teaching that undermines the gospel in any way. See for us this distinction is vital. This warning against Christlessness this warning against deceivers not a warning against Christians with a different view of baptism. It's not warning against Christians with a different view of the end times and eschatology. It's not a warning against those that think differently about worship and have different preference on what worship style should look like. We mustn't extend this kind of weighted warning to the theological, practical, or even secondary doctrinal issues that separate us from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, from our Lutheran brothers and sisters, which is why this strong warning requires discernment and vigilance. It's easy to let your pastors and elders and teachers worry about what's worth rejecting, what's worth receiving, because of vocation, your pastors may have a better grasp on some of those things, those distinctions, and yet it is every believer's responsibility nonetheless. If you have kids, you have to know what they're consuming and listening to, what's teaching them. If you're a husband or wife, you have to be discerning as to what influences your spouse. If you have neither, the readied availability of millions of podcasts, A new book on Christian life every three minutes, cultural doctrines putting pressure on our faith. Every single day, all it necessitates a discernment to know what the wicked works that we should reject. Now what if it's people that are close to us? What if it's friends? What if it's a family member that would teach a Christless gospel? Look at whatever what says. It says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Look at our opening and closing one more time. Verse one and verse 13. Verse one, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And then look at verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. That's John closing his letter from his church. Remember, we're talking about a church here. It would be consistent to then when he says house to think of the church. It makes sense, then, that those who we would reject are those who would have influence in the teaching and shaping of our life in the church. And yet that still leaves us the question, it's easy to reject a Christless gospel here from the pulpit in our discipleship and what we read and consume and teach at Sunday school. And yet that begs the question, what does that look like in our own homes? Again, this is, this is where discernment is needed. needed. Not only as to what is Christless, but to what that rejection looks like. After all, Jesus himself, he dined with Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. Most of them, almost certainly all of them, taught a Christless way of knowing God. We get a helpful instruction from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, as to what this discernment looks like starting in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. See some similar words there? truth, love. Paul's point here is that the church would grow into maturity and have the discernment, the wisdom, the conviction to face boldly the Christless doctrines without risk of being swayed, thrown to and fro by every wave of doctrine. To, as Jesus did, break bread with those that would reject him, ultimately put him on a cross. Notice, too, the tone of love and mutual effort in Paul's words. It's growing in maturity together as the church, resonating with what everything John is after in our text this morning. It's not something meant to be done in isolation. God has given us one another, the church, to confidently and with conviction share the true gospel with all who do not believe in Jesus as king. And yet what this looks like in the Christian home it's going to be distinct across our body. There are variables, millions of which we cannot cover here. Do you have kids? How old are they? Are your kids believers? Are they easily swayed? Are you in a healthy place with the Lord? Do you have strong or weak convictions? Are you able to answer some of the objections you know you're going to hear? Are you depressed or anxious? What does your Bible reading look like? What does your prayer life look like? Are you attending church on Sundays? Are you in a season of trial and suffering? All of these questions and thousands more necessitate discernment. That we would be guarded against the influence and manipulation of any gospel that is not the true gospel. While yet fulfilling Jesus' words and command to make disciples of all nations I told you earlier, I was talking to those Mormon students. Exciting to meet with them, to share the gospel with them. Would have received them and greeted them in my own home. Yet would I let one of them nanny for my children? Probably not. See what is loving about rejection? Knowing that sin is pervasive. We all have a responsibility to guard our doctrine when it comes to Jesus and his gospel. It's a responsibility taken with such seriousness that rejection is necessary. It speaks to an exclusivity of the gospel, but more impactfully, it speaks to the centrality of Jesus. Either way, the seriousness of the doctrines of Jesus are ultimately central to our understanding of love inside of the church. Wealth and power are tempting. Witty and winsome words from the mouth of a deceiver can be sweeter than any candy. Guarding ourselves, our families, our church from such deception is one of the greatest acts of love we can do for one another. So what's at stake here is eternity. Let's close our letter with John Sinoff. Verses twelve and thirteen it says, "As though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete." The children of your elect sister greet you. I love how he closes it. He says, I'm not going to waste pen. I'm not going to waste paper. I'm not going to waste ink. I want to come see you. There is room for relationships between gospel believing churches that hold fast. To Jesus that walk in the truth in love. The letter itself is proof of that. Remember that Stevers aren't people with different theologies of baptism. It's those that would preach a Christless gospel. See next week, Johnny is going to teach Third John. And where the struggle here is to not lose Jesus and to reject those that have lost Jesus. Third John is this beautiful description about receiving those that have Jesus but receiving those that would teach Jesus as the center of the gospel. So church, hold fast to Jesus. If ever it gets boring for you singing songs about the gospel, if ever it gets tiresome and boring to listen to sermons where every week Jesus and the gospel is preached, turn to 2 John. Read the warning. Read the seriousness. Read the weight of John's words. You cannot have the church without Jesus. You cannot have what will be without Jesus. And you cannot have love without Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for humility. We ask for humility where our hearts and our minds have bent to the deceptive teachings of the world and of any Christless gospel or Christless faith. Lord, I ask for discernment. that We might discern the deception that is in whatever it is we're consuming, whatever it is we listen to, and whatever it is that influences us. Lord, I pray for wisdom and clarity. That we might know what rejection looks like both inside of the church and out, Lord, I pray that our hearts would grow into maturity. Lord, that this would motivate us to, to love one another in maturity, to help each other grow, that we might not be thrown to and fro by every wave and wind of doctrine. That I pray that we would hold fast to the hope that we'll be. I pray that it would move and motivate and shape us is the beautiful truth that our eternity is secured, that it was enough that it is finished. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.